Appreciate everybody coming. Uh, this is week four of six. Today we're going to be looking at uh, parents' responsibilities to instruct our kids. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about parenting, and the truth is, and you guys know this, that parenting is a joy and it fills your life with excitement. It's an exciting thing, and it's a joy. I mean, think about how boring your life would be if you didn't have kids, right? It would be a lot different. But it's also very challenging. It's not easy, and it helps us because it messes with our peace, and it messes with our comfort, and helps us rely on the Lord. Um, it also gives us a unique purpose in life, unique purpose in life. So Paul Tripp opens up his parenting seminar, Getting to the Heart of Parenting, which I have a set of DVDs here if you want to borrow it. You uh, are more than welcome to do that. It's very, very good. Very um, kind of helpful for Beth and I to kind of shift our paradigm from behavior to trying to get the heart of our kids. It's a great seminar that he put on. But he says something in that. He says, there are a few things as important as the task that God has assigned you and me to be a part of. To be, the, to be God's chosen instrument for the forming of a soul of a precious image bearer of God. That is an awesome task. And God gives us tools to do that faithfully, tools that we can be faithful in our task. So as we transition from um, discipline to instruction, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be with us this morning as we, we learn. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have this morning to humbly uh, come before you and ask your help um, as we seek to be better parents, Lord, parents that um, would be faithful to you first and foremost and faithful to our kids to discipline and instruct them. Um, Lord, pray for our morning. Pray that it is helpful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at parenting responsibilities. We uh, have looked at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two primary tools there. We looked at discipline that is both corrective as a response to sin and formative as we're, we're training our kids preemptively on what they should and shouldn't do. Because the reality is that our children are sinful and they need to be corrected. And God prescribes loving discipline as a means to correct them. Shaped by the nature of our kids, shaped by God's example as we're following Him, shaped by the way that um, Scripture says that we are to do that. And we also looked at the practical application of that as we look to discipline our children with the rod. And all the while recognizing that we are targeting our children's hearts, recognizing that God is sovereign over the heart of our kids, recognizing that our job is to be faithful, our goal is faithfulness, our desire is that they would come to faith in Christ, and so we are faithful to uh, what we're called to be, and then we pray and trust the Lord in that. Just to kind of wrap that up, um, Beth actually sent something this week that was really helpful which she sends a lot, doesn't mean this was particularly like the first time that happened. Um, but Stuart, Stuart Scott was asked a question about, you know, if people say, do you spank or do you hit your kids, those types of things, which saying hit probably isn't the best way to do that. I might have even said that last week, but spanking, you know, using biblical language. But um, Stuart Scott answering the question, do you spank or hit your child? He says this, when I raise my child, I encourage a lot. I pray a lot. I play a lot. I teach a lot, and I use cause and effect a lot. 
So when I spank, I do it lovingly, slowly, prayerfully, and thoroughly so I don't have to do it often. And I thought that was a wise answer. If you're asked this question, you kind of think through, it's not just a yes or no. It's like, no, we contextually, we're doing everything that the, that the Bible calls us to do. And part of that is spanking our kids. So one of the tools that God gives us for faithful biblical parenting is discipline. And the other is instruction. And as we transition to instruction, it's important for us to understand that these are not wholly separate and distinct from one another. One reason that discipline is foundational is because it's vital to provide further training and instruction to our kids. It's vital because if your children don't respect your authority, they're not going to listen. They're unlikely to listen to your instruction. I mean, you might have the wisest most insightful, inspired tidbit of information that you feel is going to transform your child's life. But if your kids will not listen to you, they don't respect you, they're not gonna open their ears and hear what you have to say. So discipline sets the table for instruction as your children learn to sit and listen to what you say. At our old church in Idaho, um, Jody Ferguson taught the, the younger, kind of early elementary age Sunday school class and she kids loved her class she was so like kind and vibrant and fun and so it kind of surprised me when she she was also a middle school teacher and it surprised me when she said these are her words that in school the first couple of months she's mean she's very strict and has very quick discipline with her kids and I said why is that and she said I do that at the first so that the remainder of the year the kids have learned to respect me and they listen and we have fun the rest of the year Now, that's not a perfect analogy. We don't need to be mean to our kids, but it just was kind of striking. Like, if you set the table that the kids need to sit and listen to you, they know your authority, then they're going to be able to be instructed. First, your kids must respect your authority so that they'll listen to your instruction. So these are not completely separate and distinct, but two sides of the same coin. So today, we're going to look at the second tool, particularly informal instruction. So when we talk about instruction, that literally means to put into the mind. Putting into the mind factual information and helping your kids have right attitudes. So we're going to look at seven truths that guide our instruction over the next two weeks. Seven truths that guide our instruction. And the first is that you need to to understand the need for instructing your children. You need to understand how much your children need your instruction as their parents. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 here, but in chapter 8, Solomon gives the direct recipient of his Proverbs. Who were these Proverbs written to? And he says that they were to his son. And all of Proverbs are about instruction. And he wants, he's trying to instruct his child. So Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, says this. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And listen to the purpose here. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence, which means cleverness or discernment, to the naive, to the youth, knowledge and discretion. Okay, so you'll see there in verse 4, a particular word is used to describe Solomon's children and your children and my children, and it is the word naive. Children are naive and need instruction. 
This word doesn't mean low IQ. Your kids are very smart. You know that they are smart. But they don't know. They are ignorant. They're youths. So the default position of your child and my child is sinful foolishness. They're unwise, unrighteous, and they lack discernment. Okay? This word also means simpleton. Right? They are simple-minded. So they need instruction. It's important that we understand how much our kids need our instruction. We want them to grow in the training and admonition of the Lord, not the world. Your kids are learning machines. They are built to absorb information, and they're doing it all the time. They're always learning something. Now, I wonder what institution God designed to get the proper wisdom into the heads of foolish youngsters. Instruct young children. Well, God designed the family as the primary means for instructing children, and God, in his infinite wisdom, gave you as the particular parent of your children to do just that. He knows what he's doing. And so we need to understand the need for instruction. And the second point here is you need to embrace your responsibility for instructing your children. Just fully embrace your responsibility. God has clearly given parents the responsibility to instruct their kids. We're in Proverbs 1. Look down at verses 8 and 9. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are graceful wreath, a graceful wreath around your head and ornaments around your neck. Now, you'll notice that the responsibility for instruction is fathers and mothers. We've looked at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 already. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the training and admonition or discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, the command here is to fathers or parents, not to provoke negatively and to positively be rearing, raising, bringing up your kids. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when you turn there, put a ribbon in there because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. We're going to be primarily here and in 2 Timothy 3 this morning. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. This verse is the central Old Testament verse on the nature of God and our response. And as you'll see, it's not only true for us to know and to love God, although we must do that with all our heart, but our responsibility is to instruct our children in that same nature and character of God that we're learning. And it includes both formal and informal instruction. Verse seven, you shall teach them the word of God diligently to your kids. Diligently, the idea here is formal instruction, again and again, opening the word of God and walking through and teaching them God's word. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But verse seven goes on to say that you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Here, the idea is informal instruction. Just every single day, no matter what you're doing throughout life, you're instructing your kids. So who is the recipient of the instruction? It's children. Sons, particularly here, but daughters, children. Who is the obligation to instruct? Who has that obligation? Parents do. You and me. So the responsibility of parents to instruct is in the New Testament. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the Torah. It's also in the Psalms. Psalm 78.5. 
says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach their children. Again, you are commanded to do that. So if you are not instructing your children in the Lord, you are being disobedient. You are not obeying this command. So we need to embrace that responsibility. And it's not that we don't have help. We have a lot of help. You know, the church is of great assistance. Grandparents can be a crucial piece to making this happen. But you are responsible. Not just responsible to make sure they have a Christian environment, but responsible to be instructing. You know, there's a lot of supplemental helps and programs that you could have and videos you can buy. You could take your kids to Christian school. You know, you can pray through those things, homeschool them with the right curriculum, wake up early and make sure they go to Sunday school. You could buy all 7,000 episodes of Veggie Tales. You know, those are all things you could do, and they're potentially helpful. The Veggie Tales, less so than the other things, but they are potentially helpful. But by themselves, just creating that environment is not being obedient to this command. It's not faithfulness to this. But you are to be teaching your children, formally and informally. That means opening up the Word of God in formal teaching, and it means walking, modeling Christ in your home day in and day out. And as parents, your chief responsibility is to put effort towards training your children. It's going to take time, it's going to take effort, it's going to take prayer, it's going to take a lot of trusting in the Lord, it's going to take consistency, but we've got to be doing that. Charles Spurgeon says, the man of God exerts himself but does not trust himself. So embrace your responsibility, diligently train your kids, and trust the results to God. And this is a lot easier to be faithful to this task when we remember our goal, we keep the goal in mind. Remember the goal in instructing your children. So turn to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. And we're going to be starting in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy was a young pastor at a church in Ephesus. And Paul was his spiritual father. Paul had, had, had led him to the Lord, nurtured him. He'd been with Paul on his missionary journeys. It seems like Timothy, though, was prone to timidity. He was scared of things, right? Um, And here in chapter 3, Paul is warning Timothy that difficulty is coming. Life's not always going to be easy. Difficulty's coming. This is the last letter that Paul wrote, and it is partially written to encourage Timothy to stay the course, hold fast to the teaching. And he says in 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 16, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So look back at verse 14, the first part of that. And notice several things about the goal of our instruction. Several things about the goal. The first part of the goal that I want you to see is that they would learn, our kids would learn the scriptures and the gospel. So this is the start, that they would learn the information. Your kids need to know the material. They have to know certain facts about the gospel in order to be saved. It's crucial. We can't embrace the gospel. We can't be saved if we don't know the truths of the gospel. So our kids need to know the right answer. They need the facts 
But that's not the end goal. So we don't stop with the facts. We don't stop there because the next part of the goal is that they would be convinced of what they have learned. They learn it and they're convinced of it. To be convinced of something means to be sure of something because of its reality and its reliability. To feel confident in it and be convinced of its truth. This is when the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scripture, the stories of the Bible, the wisdom of the Proverbs, those types of things that you are opening the word and instructing them begin to sink into their hearts and begin to shape their thinking and their responses. They begin to live the truth through your consistent instruction, Lord willing, they would be convinced of the truth of your instruction and no longer as, as susceptible to dilution of the word or, or being led astray or compromise. They know it, they embrace it, and they begin to live it. Last summer, um, we taught the Ten Commandments in summer Sunday school. And one of the things I wanted them to be able to do is to recite the Ten Commandments. It was just one of, something that would be helpful. And so we taught them the, the finger signs for the Ten Commandments. And I learned them so well that I have notes here that is going to help me walk in walk you through them too because I didn't I don't remember anyways so one God right one God command number two no idols right you don't bow down to idols number three do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain number four remember the Sabbath and keep it holy number five obey your father and mother so on and so forth those are the best ones and it gets kind of weird from there I'm not going to do the rest of them okay but that was kind of the the purpose was that, hey, that they would know the Ten Commandments, okay? But that's not the final goal. What I wanted them to know was to know the awesome and holy God of the commandments, to recognize that these are important to know, but what's the purpose here? That he's called us to holiness, that we are to be set apart, that these laws are for our good and obedience leads to blessing, disobedience leads to discipline that they would know that they're called to do this, but that they are utterly incapable of obeying these commandments, even the, from an external standpoint, let alone from the heart, which is what Christ says that we need. So they need a savior. They're utterly unable to do this. They've already failed, and they need to embrace the means that God has given them to be saved, that they would know the law, embrace the gospel, and not just know the facts of the Ten Commandments that they'd have a settled conviction. They'd be convinced that it's true. And then when they do that, Lord willing, they will continue in what they have learned. And this is our, the next part of our goal with our kids. They know the truth, they're convinced of its truthfulness, and they continue in it. And this is kind of the main goal, that they retain it and use it, not learn it and forget it. That it would have a life-altering, transforming effect in their life as they go from darkness to light. They become born again and live the joyful life that comes from service to the king and consistent application of God's word for the rest of their life. That's kind of the end goal here. And Paul's exhortation to Timothy is to continue in the things that you have learned and been convinced of even when the going gets tough. To continue in the faith, which is really where we are shown genuine faith, that our faith is real. Colossians 1, 21 to 23 says... And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you're steadfast in your faith, 
you're convinced of its truthfulness, you're gonna continue in, and remain in the truth. And our prayer is that they would withstand the trials of life, that our children would remain in the, in the faith. That's the prayer for my kids. We can't make them believe, we can't change their hearts, but the goal, and really in this context, maybe desire is a better, better you know, word. The desire is that they would embrace the truth of the gospel and remain firmly steadfast. A goal kind of implies that we can reach it on our own, right? So the goal is faithfulness. The desire is heart change in our kids. To continue in, biz- in obedience. Live out what they've learned. Uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go and make disciples of all the nation, teaching them to observe and obey all that I command you. There you have the, the end goal there. You teach them the truths and they would go on and observe and obey. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. You have the understanding and the knowledge and that you walk in a manner worthy. So the Christian life is filled with joy and service to the king. And we want our kids to, to, to know that and to embrace it and to live it and to continue in it. And we want them to, to be led to faith in Christ through our ministry. This past June, I finished seminary. Thank the Lord for that. And in th- a very thorough ordination training. Right? So two year, three years of uh, an Excel internship and four years of seminary. Countless hours of study. And by God's grace, I passed this oral exam with the elders. And I was happy that I did that. But that's not the ultimate goal of the training. That's not the ultimate purpose. The purpose of the training is that I would learn the material, be convinced that it's helpful to the people around me that God puts in my life to be able to serve and to retain the knowledge and to continue using it in my ministry year after year. Otherwise, it's completely worthless. If I just learned it and forgot it, all that time is basically worthless. And we can multiply examples here. You wouldn't want your pilot to learn how to fly the plane and not continue in what he learned and forget how to fly. John Piper says, he says, we want, what we want from the next generation is not just heads full of right facts about the works of God. We want heads full of right facts and hearts that burn with the fire of love for the God of those facts. Hearts that will sell everything to follow Jesus into the hardest places of the world. And so that is the desire. And to accomplish that goal, you and I, in our homes, need to put Jesus on display actively, on the offense, okay? I think too often, we as parents are playing defense. We're protecting our kids from something, either physically or from spiritual harm, which is important. It's part of our job, right, is to protect our kids. You should be, make sure that your kids are safe and keep them from an abundance of worldly influence. It's part of our job. But to have success and be faithful, we need to be playing offense. Not passively, not passive in how we exemplify Christ, but actively exalting him in our homes. By the way you speak and the way you live, the way you teach and the way you act, make Christ more desirable than anything else in your life to your kids. And so you have to recognize that your example is crucial in that. Remember your goal and recognize that your example is instructing your kids. It's happening. Whether you like it or not, always happening in your home. Continuing there in 2 Timothy 3, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. Okay, so the first item here 
is that your life speaks volumes to your children. Recognize your example. Recognize the fact that your life speaks volumes to your children. By and large, not perfectly, but kids are going to gravitate towards what their parents love. And they're going to love that as well. So do you want the spark of the gospel to ignite an inferno in the heart of your kid? Yes, we do want that. Well, it's a lot harder if your fire for Christ is just kind of a smoldering ember resting against soggy wood. It's not gonna happen nearly as easy. Especially when you're passionate about other things in comparison, right? Think of the things that you're passionate about. Maybe for some reason you're passionate about the cowboys, and it comes out, is it too, too early for that? Sorry. It comes out, right? You put on the jersey and you buy the silver and blue popcorn and you sit around the table and it's a thing in your house. There's nothing wrong with that, but your kids know that's what you're passionate about and you scream at the TV in joy or anger or frustration or whatever. Been there, right? Or maybe you light up in September, or October, November, whenever hunting season happens, and your kids know that's what you live for year after year after year is that hunting season. Well, if you want your kids to love Jesus, then your love for Jesus needs to be the thing that's permeating your household. This is the informal training from Deuteronomy 6-7. You shall teach them diligently to your kids. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In that same seminar, Paul Tripp talks about your house should be filled with God, 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 God all the time no matter what you're doing. You could be boiling water for tea or whatever and your kids are there and you could talk about the fact that God is awesome. He created water in three forms. It freezes at 32 degrees every time and it turns into a gas at 212 degrees every time because God is a God of order and he created this thing called water. He's orderly, he's awesome. Whatever you're doing, those everyday mundane tasks are opportunities for you to put on display the glory of God. I grew up not loving the Cowboys, but loving the Denver Broncos. Now, why did I love the Denver Broncos? Well, because my dad and my grandpa loved the Broncos, and we never missed a game. We were the weirdos with the orange and blue popcorn at the game, right? And if you cut them, they would have bled orange and blue, And we talked about the game all the time. And I didn't love the Broncos because I knew the rules about football. I didn't love the Broncos because they talked about how bad the Raiders are and that they didn't like the Chiefs and I knew who not to root for. No, I loved the Broncos because of the passion and the love that my dad and my grandpa had for the team. And it was going to happen. It was dyed in the wool by the time I could talk, right? Now, if they told me that they loved the Broncos, but we never really watched the games, or it was just on in the background as we did other things, and I didn't know who the players were, and we didn't talk about it, do you think I would have loved the Broncos? Maybe, but probably not as easily, right? But they put their love on display. I had an example to follow, and it worked. Now, imagine if they took that passion and applied it to Christ, and God is sovereign over all of that, But that's what we want in our homes, to take the passion that we have and apply that to something that has eternal value. Put on display the love and passion for Christ. Um, Looking back at 2 Timothy 3, 14. This is remarkable. Again, Timothy, why should you press on 
Why should you continue in the things that you have been taught? What does Paul say? Is it because it's in the Bible and the Bible is true? Yeah, and he gets there. Is it because of his mom's brilliant family devotions complete with puppet shows? Maybe important. Those family devotions are great. But the first reason that he gives is the godly example of the people that taught him. You, however, continue in the things you've learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. Who did he learn them from? His mother and his grandmother in his home. Your example is crucial. When your child is older, he's going to be bombarded with temptation, assaulted with trials and things in his life. Perhaps a temptation towards gossip or angry speech. Whatever it is. And chances are, maybe he will, but chances are he's not going to say, you know, I remember, I'm tempted to do this, but I remember my mom's brilliant exposition on the benefits of taming the tongue. She created this Venn diagram with all the benefits of edifying speech and individual circles, and we're aiming at that middle where they all meet. And then she had this flow chart, and she brought it out. Probably pretty helpful. But she's probably going to remember something similar to this. I remember the loving and long-suffering way that my mom responded to my dad when he was angry. And I want to emulate that. You know, my mom always hoped the best in others. And I don't ever remember her participating in gossip. So when I'm tempted, I'm going to remember that. Your kids remember your actions that go along with what you're teaching them. You could say that more is caught than taught. And Timothy had wonderful examples of godliness in his life. One was Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Think about that. Paul's saying, follow my example as I follow Christ. That's a pretty bold statement. Are you prepared to say that in your home? Follow me as I follow Christ. No doubt the ministry, the things that Paul taught, had an impact on Timothy's life. But so did the example of the Apostle Paul's life as Timothy traveled with him in those formative years of his life on those missionary journeys. It made a difference. 2 Timothy, Timothy 1.5 says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it dwells with you as well. Timothy's mother and his grandmother loved the Lord, opened the scriptures and taught him the word, and have an, had an example. And it was the example, the example is the means that the Lord used to help bring him to faith. Now, of course, the inverse is true as well, because your Life speaks volumes to your children. This is a quote from Archbishop Tillotson, which I have no idea who that is, but it's quoted by J.C. Ryle, so it's good, okay? It says this, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. Think about that. To give children good instruction, good teaching, about the word of God and a bad example is but beckoning them with, the, them with the head to show them the way to heaven while taking them by the hand and leading them in the way to hell. That's a sobering quote. It's true. So sitting down, for example, and having a, a kid's Bible study with your kids on the fruits of the Spirit, for example, would be a great idea. Formal instruction on what the fruits of the Spirit are. Critically important, 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says to retain the sound words that you hear from me. Paul was teaching Timothy. We should be teaching our kids. 
We should be doing that. So it would be a great idea to sit down and give formal instruction on something like the, the fruits of the Spirit. But that must be coupled by you exemplifying those fruits of the Spirit in your home. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. Formal instruction on the what and the why and the how of kindness is important. But exemplifying that is equally important. So are you consistently unkind and angry with others on the road, for example, saying one thing, this is what we should do, and doing another? That speaks volumes to your kids. Are you consistently patient with your kids? If not, then that's a perfect opportunity for you to exemplify and model confession and repentance to them as you're going through that lesson. You know, kids, as we're learning about patience, I'm struck with the fact that I have fallen short many times. I have not lived this in my home, in in our home, the way I should. Would you please forgive me? Because your example is instructing your kids. You can't get away from it. You need to do what you say. John MacArthur says, to successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and to hold them as your own, if you want to do that, it's necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. And they're going to be in your home for at least 18 years. And they need to see you consistently living those things. That's why Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, it says, pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your actions and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, listen to this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear. Now the ESV says, you will save both yourself and those who hear. It's, that's amazing. Your life, your actions, and your teaching is the means that God will use to draw people to salvation. And if you turn back to Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6, we see this here as well. Hopefully you put a ribbon there. If not, just listen. Now this is the commandment, verse 1, and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you do them in the land you're going to possess. They're on the Jordan River. They're about to go in, this new generation. Moses is giving them the law, so you need to, you need to obey the law. You need to do the things that I have taught you. God commanded me to teach you and you need to do these things in the land where you're going to possess. Verse 5, what are you going to do? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you to do today shall be on your heart. And then in verse 7, he says, you are to teach them. You're going to teach them to your kids. Okay, so you do them, you show them, then you teach them. To teach obedience and live in disobedience is hypocrisy and you're Children are going to recognize that. And it's going, to be, it's going to render your teaching potentially ineffectual, not as helpful. Or worse, it could encourage rebellion. And we're not talking perfection here, right? None of us are going to be perfect at this. We're talking about faithfulness. We're talking about being quick to repent if you have sinned against your kids, exemplifying that and just consistent growth in your life as you open up the scriptures and apply it to you first. Because what you do what you love, how you spend your time, what entertains you, what your priorities are, are neon lights and megaphones while you teach your kids, good or bad. So as parents, we can either smooth the way to the wicked gate, we can smooth the way of the narrow path that leads to life, or we're putting up obstacles. 
There's really no, those are the two options. None of us go out of the way to sabotage our kids' walk with the Lord. That's probably repugnant to you. If somebody else was putting up obstacles in your kids' walk with the Lord, you would fight against that. Right? But if you're not careful to do what you say, that's exactly what you're doing. Your life is either an example of godliness that helps them continue in what you've taught them or potentially part of the problem, putting obstacles in their way and causing them to stumble. It's just serious. Um, John Angle James says this, Parents, as you would wish your instructions and your admonitions to your family to be successful, the things that you're teaching, we want those to hit, a, hit the mark. Speak to their heart. Enforce them by the power of holy example. It is not enough for you to be generally pious, but you need to be wholly pious or completely. Not only to be real disciples, but eminent ones or present, a positive influence, eminent disciples. Not only sincere Christians, but consistent ones. Your standard of true religion should be very high. To some parents, I would give this advice. Say less about religion to your children or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. It's not an option for us to leave off family prayer, but we must have a testimony that matches that. So again, it doesn't mean that you're perfect before you can instruct your kids. And part of what we need to model is how we respond to sin. Modeling humility, modeling your need for Christ, confession of sin, your need for forgiveness, how we reconcile. What's the biblical model for reconciliation? Use those things as an opportunity to put on display the grace of God. The idea is not that mom and dad are perfect. It's that mom and dad depend on Jesus just as much as you do. We are desiring to grow in the Lord. We need Jesus in our life. So generally, our example will either affirm and strengthen biblical truth about the Lord or it will undermine it. But I want to take a little bit of time and talk specifically how scripture highlights how our example influences our children your life is contagious or your life speaks volume it's contagious and your worship is contagious with your children what you worship worship is contagious right we want them to catch this germ of love for god worship expressing our love to the savior we want our kids to love and worship the God of the Bible through the Son and love Him with all their hearts. So turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, which gives a very powerful kind of um, message here related to this, what you worship matters. Exodus 20, this is the giving of the Ten Commandments, verses 1 to 6 shows the giving of the first two commandments. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Command number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So what is this teaching? This is not teaching that your children will be punished for your sins. 
right? Moses makes that clear in Deuteronomy 24, 16. Ezekiel 18, 20 to 21 makes that clear as well. It says the person who sins will surely die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's, son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Each person is responsible for their own sins before God and will be judged accordingly. However, this is teaching that the natural consequences of sin can last for generation. This is teaching that who and how you worship, what you love in your home, matters to you, to your kids, to your grandkids, and potentially your great-grandchildren. You're creating a legacy of worship in your home. If your children follow in your footsteps and are idolaters, maybe not bowing down to an image, but loving something other than God with all of their heart, God will punish them and they will be accountable to that. But, verse 6, showing loving kindness to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments, the opposite is true as well. That's why who and how you worship matters. Children learn to handle life by watching their parents. So what do you treasure? What do your children think is the most important thing in their life? If your children see mom and dad finding fulfillment in worldly things, generally speaking, they're going to follow in that pattern. Children watch their parents spending their time and their money and their energy on worldly pursuits. They're naturally going to start copying those values and then they're naturally going to raise their kids to do the same, so on and so forth. And this doesn't have to be sinful things. It's what is capturing your heart, what you're putting on display in your home, what you're worshiping ultimately. And when children see their parents worshiping stuff, they're gonna learn that stuff is to be treasured. So what do your kids think you worship? Honestly ask that question in your heart. What do my kids think that I worship? Do they know that you treasure Christ more than your job and your possessions and your comfort and your respect? Do they know that you love Jesus more than your family or your spouse or your children? So dads, if your son's friend came to him and asked him, what's the most important thing in your life, in the life of their father, what would they say? What would your kids say just from watching your life and what you love? Hobby, your family, your job, Christ, the Bible, loves the Bible, loves learning about God. What would they say? Moms, what would your daughter say if she was asked, what does your mom love most? Hopefully she'd answer something like, well, my mom enjoys a lot of things, but she loves Jesus. That's what we're after, is putting that on display because what you worship matters. What you're passionate about, what you put on display in your home matters. And how you worship is also contagious. How you worship matters. We want to model in our homes that corporate worship is important. Okay, Psalm 145.4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Um, you're in Exodus, but Deuteronomy's not that far away. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Starting in verse 11. Um, starting in verse 11. It says this, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read the law in front of all of Israel in their hearing. 
You're going to gather together corporately and you're going to do something. You're going to read the law, the first five books of the Bible. Verse 12, assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words in this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you're about to cross the Jordan and possess. So Moses is saying everyone comes together. Everyone assembles, the men, the women, and the children, and we're going to read the law. Doesn't sound like they had a kids program here. And why do they do this? So that they would learn to feel the, to, to fear the Lord, learn and hear the word. Right? They're not, kids are not going to get everything out of the message. I mean, they're standing there reading the first five books of the Bible. That would take a long time. They're going to get everything, but they'll get some of the message that God is a big God who loves us and saved us and calls us to obedience and, and gives us the power to do that. But beyond, Deuteronomy 31.12 says that the purpose for the gathering is that they would hear and learn. And when everyone assembles, it brings an importance to an event. It's different than anything else that you do in your home. There's a reverence and an awe for God that comes with the worship and the corporate gathering. So your kids need to learn who to worship from watching you, and they need to learn how to worship from watching you. And when your kids are old enough, to join you in the worship service, we highly encourage them to do that so that they can benefit from the teaching themselves. They can hear Pastor Tom and they know what he's saying and they can learn from that on their own. And so your kids can see you singing. They can see you sitting under the authority of the word as it's taught by your pastor. Right? They can see you engaged and hopefully, again, back to your example, you're singing with gusto and you're taking notes doing something that you probably don't do at anything else. Where else do you take notes? Probably not while you're watching the football game, unless you're a little weird, right? <laughs> probably not doing that, right? And they'll see that this matters more than anything else that my dad does or my mom does, right? But if they see you kind of aloof, hands in your pockets, mumbling through the songs, checking your fantasy football scores, you know, that's gonna speak volumes as well. John and Noel Piper say this, Say, parents have a responsibility to teach their children by their own example the meaning and the value of worship. Therefore, parents should want their children with them in the worship so that children can catch the spirit and the form of their parents' worship. They should see how mom and dad sing praise to God with joy on their faces and how they listen hungrily to the word. They should catch the spirit of their parents meeting the living God. Something seems wrong, he says, when parents want to take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and other adults in the, to form the attitudes and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model for their children the tremendous value that they put on reverence in the presence of the Almighty God. Now you have freedom to choose the best age to do this with your kids, the age that you think is best. And I also want to point out that we do have a very good children's program at this church, right? An excellent program dedicated to gospel ministry. Dozens of teachers that take their job very seriously, that study the word of God and come ready to give a compelling, fun, kid-age-appropriate presentation of the word of God to make it a blessing to you and your kids. And they do that every Sunday morning. But your kids also need to see you in worship. 
And so the benefit of having multiple services is that your kids get to have their cake and eat it too, right? They can go to Sunday school and you can take them to worship with you. Singing praises to God, worshiping corporately with the saints, opening the Bible, learning from their pastor, and also hearing appropriate, fun, compelling, God-glorifying, Christ-honoring, gospel-proclaiming Sunday school message in the children's building. Now again, you, you can decide what age is best for you to do this with your kids, but it's probably able to be done earlier than you think. And to kind of help you, I printed in there a few tips to help you transition. If you're not doing this with your preschool-aged kids, prayerfully consider doing that and read through some of those helpful tips. It's also in a booklet in the children's building because how you worship is contagious and we want our kids to catch the worship germ, love the Lord their God and continue in this corporate worship. And so how we worship matters. Your life speaks volumes and what you do matters. What you worship matters. How you worship matters. And next, your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. Your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. You know, there are a lot of reasons in Scripture that God values marriage. It's a wonderful thing. Those of you who are married understand that. But one of the reasons that God values marriage is in Ephesians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but 5 verses 22 to 33. And the reason given there is because marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage preaches the gospel to those around you and to your kids. These verses teach that the relationship of the wife in marriage is a picture of Christ's, I'm sorry, of the church's submission to Christ in verses 22 to 24. It also teaches that the relationship of the husband to the wife is a picture of Christ's love for his church. So wives, when you are lovingly trusting your husband and submitting to their authority in your home when then you are putting on display trust and loving obedience to to god the way that we are supposed to submit to christ you're putting that on display you're trusting the lord by trusting your husband in essence you're you should be able to say follow me as i follow christ in my marriage husbands when you love your wives unconditionally selflessly treating her as more important than yourself you are showing the unreserved selfless and sacrificial love that christ has for his church saying follow me as i follow christ watch how much i love my wife and it's a picture of how much christ loves his church and it's designed this way god designed marriage to be a great illustration for the gospel and we have the opportunity to preach the gospel through our interactions with one another every single day before our kids. Very long quote here by William Farley, but it's very good. I couldn't say it better, so I just wrote it all out here. Here it is. The gospel is the good news that the groom, capital G, loves his bride. He loved her so much that he humbled himself and descended an infinite distance, became man and suffered poverty and abuse for 33 years. Then in the greatest display of love in history, he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a cross in his bride's place. The Son of God did all this to serve his bride and to make peace where enmity reigned. What motivated him? What motivated him to do that? Love that surpasses knowledge. He longed to unite himself in irrevocable love 
to an unworthy bride. But the gospel is not just about the groom's love. It also provokes a response from his bride. When understood from the heart, it motivates her to humble herself, love the groom with all her heart, respect him and serve him with joyful abandon. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. Here's Paul's point. Christian marriage preaches this union. You can't get around it. It's happening all the time. It either makes it attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says that Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He's infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife or verbally belittles her or loves his children more than her or takes her for granted, his marriage says that Christ's love is not that great. He, he, sir, he loves us only when we perform. You can't trust the Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. And why serve a fickle despot? Wives also preach. When mom joyfully submits to her husband as, the, as to the Lord, recognizing that he is her head as Christ is the head of the church and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, and we are unworthy of that, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. The Son of God is infinitely good, and you can trust him to take care of you. But when the wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, resist his authority, refuses to respect him, declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say the Son of God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he will exalt me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? In most cases, her children will internalize what she does and not what she says. So, in other words, we have a great opportunity, but it's a sobering thought, isn't it? We want our kids to understand how much Jesus loves them, and we can help them do that by how, guys, we are loving our wives. We want our kids to submit their lives to Christ and wholly trust them, even when things aren't going the way we want. Wives, you can put that on display, and your marriage can point to Christ, that you trust Him completely. So another question, how are you doing here? Dads, if your children heard that how you love your wife exemplifies how you want them, how Christ loves his church and that, that relationship, would that be helpful or hurtful? Moms, if children read that the way you are currently submitting to your husband and respecting him is a picture of how you want them to respectfully submit to Christ, what would they think? Because the truth is that we have a powerful opportunity to preach the gospel in our homes through our marriages. And so we need to recognize that. The marriage preaches, your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. Next, we're gonna look at that we need to prioritize scripture in instructing your children. We need to understand the need for instructing your children. Embrace your responsibility. Remember your goal recognize your example is instructing and now we need to prioritize scripture in instructing your children. So looking back at 2 Timothy, 
We're going to turn back over there. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 16 again. Let's look further into this verse. Paul says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired or or breathed out, product of God's breath, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 15 says that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? The Bible, right? Scripture, yeah. Particularly here, Old Testament Scripture, right? The sacred writings. You have known the sacred writings um, and because of the faithfulness of Timothy's mother and his grandmother, Timothy had known the Scriptures, it says, from childhood, literally infancy, Before he could really understand even what he was being taught, the scriptures were important in his home. Sometimes we think that, well, my kids are just too young to open up the Bible and read to them. That's not true. From a very young age, Timothy understood how important the Bible is. He began to understand that this is where we go for, for truth, how we know who God is and what he's done and how we're to respond. They may not get everything that you're reading them, but from a very young age, they'll know how important this is to you and how important it is to them and where you go when you need instruction. And what are the scriptures able to do? Well, it is the scripture that changes the heart. We need to prioritize scripture when we're instructing our kids because scripture gives wisdom for salvation. Verse 15, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I long for our kids to be born again. That God would would call them, prepare their hearts to hear the gospel and draw them to himself. Where is salvation found? Salvation is found in the scriptures. The scriptures lead your child to embrace the Savior. And because we long for our children to embrace the Savior, your instruction needs to be dripping with the Bible, with Scripture. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul, breathes life into dead souls. It restores them. Romans chapter 10, Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Your children's faith, your faith, came when you heard the word of Christ. And not simply random verses, but the entire biblical narrative. Not just a quick jaunt down the Romans road, but a worldview that is shaped through Scripture and nurtured in your home. That they would understand that God is the awesome creator of all things. Understand that He's called them to live a holy life that they're utterly incapable of doing. They are sinners that must be redeemed. They need a rescuer found only in Christ that they need to repent of their sins and believe. Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. And so we need to prioritize Scripture when we're training our kids because Scripture also is profitable. It is profitable for several things, four of which are listed here in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Four nouns here. Let's walk through these real quick and and look at these four benefits of Scripture. First, 
Scripture is profitable or beneficial for teaching. It's useful for teaching. The word teaching does not refer, refer to a process or a method of teaching, but rather its content. You're teaching, the contents that you're teaching your kids need to be, needs to be Scripture. First and foremost, using Scripture to give direction, teaching, showing them the right way. This is what the Word of God says that we need to be doing, both wise living and the path for salvation. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Teaching is helping your kids understand that trust, that faith, that salvation, that wise living comes from Scripture. They, the Scripture shows them the right way. Son, here is the right path. And so the first benefit of the word is instruction. But it also includes reproof. This word carries the idea of rebuke in order to convict of misbehavior. So you have told your kids the right path, you've taught them the right way, but now they're strayed off the path. Scripture's profitable here as well. You've taught them the benefits of honesty, and now they're lying. Scripture helps bring that to bear on their heart. It's profitable to inform them that they're on the wrong path, and they are straying into danger, exposing and informing the sins of your child in their heart. You know the way, and you're off the path. You need to be reproved. So how do you get them back on the right path? Well, Scripture's profitable there too. That's correction. Correction carries the idea of restoring an object to its original and correct position or helping a person back on their feet when they stumble. Okay? So if you knock over a lamp, you'd correct it by setting it upright. If your children have, have strayed to the wrong path, you take them by the hand and you lead them back on the way. And if your child stumbles on the path, you help them up. You correct them. Tell them again the right way of doing it. So we need to prioritize scripture in our instruction because it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and last, training in righteousness. Our last word is training, which means instructing or building up, right? So we're equipping them now to stay on their feet next time. Taught them the path, but they strayed off the path. You put them back on the path and then you say, this is how you stay on the path next time. See that rock? You can avoid those, right? That's what tripped you up. You know that vine that entangled your feet? Here's how you cut that off so it can, can't affect you anymore. You're training them to deal with the temptations of life, how to grow in maturity and not stumble the next time that they are tempted. And what is profitable to do all that? Is it your knowledge, your wisdom, your skill as a parent? No, it's the scriptures. And so we need to teach our kids the scriptures when they're young and prioritize scripture when we're instructing them. Okay, now we're gonna pick it up there next time. Now you might be sitting there thinking, um, as I am when I'm preparing these things, I'm convicted of my inability to do this right and where I've fallen short. Maybe you're thinking, this is not, hasn't been the, pa- the pattern of my parenting, my instructing. You know what? Today's a new day. There's still hope and there's time while your kids are in your house. So sit down with your kids and say, we're gonna start doing this, doing a better job with this. There's always time to transform your home into a God-honoring, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-modeling, scripture-saturated place. And so I'll be praying for you. I ask that you would pray for me that we would 
do this in a way that is helpful for our kids and honoring to the Lord and help ourselves grow. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and your goodness and your mercy. Lord, I just um, ask for your help. Lord, we, we know and we understand how important our example is to our kids, Lord, but we need help to do this in a way that is helpful and not hurtful, Lord. So I pray that you would strengthen us, you'd convict us, Lord, that you would help us to exemplify uh, the fruits of the Spirit, exemplify Christ, model loving forgiveness, Lord, that we would be quick to repent, Lord, you would humble us to do that with our children. Lord, I also pray that, you know, we would understand how important Scripture is in our house, Lord, that you would help us to daily, consistently, anyways, open up the Word and prioritize Scripture in our homes. Lord, I just pray for each and every one of us, the parents here, Lord, that um, as we're learning these things, that uh, we would put them into practice for your glory and the good of our kids. In Jesus' name, amen.